All right. I really appreciate how you figured out how to work heck into that. I think like every time you do an announcement, right? It's, that's your thing. All right. Turn with me in to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. So on Good Friday, Jesus was stripped, beaten, hung on the cross, buried, stone was rolled in its place, and then three days later, something happened. Something happened which, which changed everything, which gave hope beyond what we can ever imagine. So that's what we're diving into today out of Hebrews chapter 11. So let's, let's pray together before we do that. Can we do that? God, you are worthy of all honor and all praise. You're worthy to be glorified and worshipped. In this world of, of death and decay, we believe that you offer something more. We believe that you offer hope. And so this morning we, we celebrate Christ, the Christ who was crucified and three days later was risen. God, convict us this morning, draw us to repentance, open our eyes to the gospel, open our hearts to follow after you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to just dive on in. Verse 35 Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. What's going on there? Women received back their dead, raised to life again. He's writing to Jewish Christians who immediately would be thinking of the Old Testament. He's, I think, referring to two accounts in the Old Testament where women receive their dead back. Uh, in 1 Kings chapter 17, the woman of Zarephath, do you know the story? Her son falls ill, becomes very sick, and then dies. His heart stops beating. And she's in shambles, and she goes to Elijah the prophet with tears running down her face. She's lost her little boy. And with tears running down her face, she looks at the prophet, and, so, and he goes to the house. And he goes into the room, and it says that he screams. And he breathes his own breath into the boy, and at that, life happens. God raises this little boy back from the dead. Or also the, the next book over, 2 Kings chapter 4. Another, there's another woman, another son, who's out with his father in the fields. He has what appears to be like a brain aneurysm. It says that he, he grabs his head and he says, my head, my head, and, and he falls to the ground and the, and the, the father picks him up and carries him to, to his mother and sits him in her lap and he dies in her arms. And if, uh, she, again, she... Uh, of course, is in tears, and she, she's freaking out. 
and she goes to another prophet, Elisha. He comes, he, he, he actually goes up to the boy's room where, where this cold body is laying, this dead, cold body. He lays on top of the boy, it says eyes to eyes, nose to nose, mouth to mouth, his arms and his, his feet and his hands stretched out over the boy, and, and the scriptures say that the boy's body grew warm, raised to life. I mean, these are what we call miracles, where, where God enters the ordinary and does something extraordinary. Where God enters the natural way things happen and changes it and does something supernatural. These are what we call miracles. They're, they're miracles of escape. This is the way things were supposed to go and, and God turned it around. This person died and God granted them life again. And th th I mean, think about this. If, if, we, if you've never lost a child, you, we probably, I, I've never lost a child. I can't imagine the pain. I can't imagine the pain that these women faced when their little boys' hearts stopped beating, when they stopped breathing. I can't imagine the pain. How, how they longed for that child to just wake up. I remember when I was uh, a, a kid, my friend died. He was 12 years old. And um, he, was, he was on a tractor, and the tractor rolled and, and crushed him. 12 years old, and I remember being at his, at his house, and they lived on this farm, and I went, went out into the woods, and I just remember sitting, sitting at this tree, just thinking like, man, I wish he would come back to life. Like, it was just this really strong, powerful feeling, like, I really wish he would just, like, I could almost picture him just walking across the field right there, as I'd seen him done before. You know, I just wish, I remember being at his funeral, just like, wishing he would wake up He's just laying there. Wake up. So can you, can you imagine then not only the pain that these women felt as they're looking at their, their sons who have died, their cold bodies, the utter absolute pain and, and loss, but then imagine the joy that they experienced when the boys were raised back to life. Can you imagine that kind of joy? Where you're just like, oh, I can't believe this. You know, I, I, I wish he would wake up with all of my heart. I, and then all of a sudden, his body, his body grows warm and he wakes up. Can you imagine that joy? Now, this is what the writer of Hebrews is saying right here. As great as that is, there's something better. There's a better kind of joy to be had. There's a better kind of resurrection. Look, look back at the verse, verse 35. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. And then he goes on, he counters it. Others, he says, were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Better than what? Than what the mothers received. The resurrection of the, that these mothers received of their little boys growing warm again, their hearts start to pound again and they start to breathe again and they come back to life. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that there is a better resurrection and that there are those who, others who were tortured and refused to be released. And the word tortured is the word tupanitso, which is derived from the word tupanon, which literally means drum. And, and this, is a, this is an ancient form of uh, torture where they would literally stretch someone out and they would, they would have him bowed so low 
that, that he would just be like, he would be like a drum basically. And they had, had a beating stick and they would just beat this person. And, he, and the way that he, he was stretched would just be like optimal sort of target, I guess, to where every, every lash, every time the, the beating stick comes down, it comes down hard. And he says some people were tortured. They were stretched out. They were tortured. And they refused to be released. They refused to be released. And as the people are listening to this, they know exactly what he's talking about. All sorts of stories of God's people who were tortured and, and, uh, and asked to compromise. To turn their back on the living, the one true God. To compromise and to embrace something else. And if they didn't do it, they were tortured. There's a story, an ancient Jewish story. It's in, it's in the book of the Maccabees. Where this woman, she has seven children, seven sons. And, uh, and they're, they're being forced to compromise. To turn their backs on Yahweh, on the one true God, and embrace something else. And every one of them is absolute, I'm not going to do it. Not going to compromise who God is, what he has commanded me to do, how he's commanded me to live my life. Not going to compromise it. And so the first son, they took him because he's the first one that spoke up and they ripped out his tongue. They cut off his hands and then his feet. They took off the skin off of his head and the hair. They scalped him and asked him if he would compromise. And he said no. And they took his body and they fried his body with the other brothers and the mom looking on, watching this. And then they took every other son and did the exact same thing. One of them said this, his last words before they just went crazy and threw him in the pan. He said, it is my choice to die at the hands of men with the God-given hope of being restored to life by him. It's my choice to die. I can compromise if I want to compromise. I can back out. I can turn my back on God and I can live. I can have a sort of resurrection. But the reality is, is even for these sons that were raised, they're still, they're raised to this life and they're still going to die, right? They're still going to die. And so he could compromise and he could turn his back and he could say, I, I take life. But he says, I choose to die. Because of my hope in the resurrection. Because of my hope in the resurrection. And every one of those sons took that same path. And then finally and lastly, the mother took the same path as well. Refused to compromise. Because they were guided by a hope of something bigger and better than what we know right now. I think when we, when we start talking about hope, the problem is in our culture, and our world, that the word hope itself has sort of lost any sense of meaning and impact. Um, there was a city, city paper, I was reading the city paper the other day, and it actually talked about, there's an article, article in there, it's in this month's, um, about uh, how the presidential campaign was run on hope. But now, like, like all presidents, you know, it's not a shocker, but now we're like more into pragmatism. We're like, what are we doing with this country? And, you know, we're not talking about hope so much anymore. And the, the article was like, hope is dead. You know, there, I mean, there is no such thing, is essentially what they were getting at. I heard a quote the other day. Somebody said, I, I was much happier when I gave up on hope. 
You know, and how much of how many of us go like, man, that's so true. Like, I'd be much happier if I just gave up on hope. But it's because we define hope as mere wishful thinking. You know, I hope something will happen. I hope there will be reform. I hope the pov those in poverty will be lifted out. I, I, I hope this will happen. I hope that will happen. I hope my marriage will get better. I hope my life will get better. I hope I get a better job. And it's just kind of like mere wishful thinking. Like, we don't think it's actually going to happen, but man, we hope it does, right? That's not, when, when, when the Bible talks about hope, when we talk about hope here in, in this context of what we're part of here at the garden, of what we're trying to understand and figure out and live out, when we talk about hope in the biblical context, we're talking about confident expectation. A, a confident expectation, firm assurance regarding things that are unclear and unknown. It's, it's the fundamental component of the life of those who are living according to God's way. Without hope, life loses its meaning, and in death we see in Isaiah and Job, there is no hope. The righteous who trust or put their hope in God will, as it says in Psalms, be helped. The righteous who have this trustful hope in, in, in God have a confidence in something better. It's not mere wishful thinking. It's, it's confidence, confident expectation that there is something better and therefore then we are free from fear. We are free from anxiety. This nagging thought that we may die, that we may get sick, that we may have problems. We're free from that because of hope. Let me give you an example of, of how this works. In Acts chapter 23, um, verse 6, Paul is standing before the Sanhedrin and he's being questioned. He's on trial. And, and what he says to them is, is this. He, he says, my brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection. I'm standing on trial. I'm here. I'm before you. I'm, I'm looking at, at possible imprisonment. You know, you know, Paul spent five to six years in prison during his ministry? Five to six years total he spent in prison. And so he, here he is again, standing on trial again. And he says, it's for the hope, it's because of my hope in the resurrection. Because, first of all, uh, the, the, the very fact that he's claiming that there is a resurrection, that Jesus rose from the dead, has all sorts of problems, politically, socially, re, uh, re, religiously, is that a word? Religiously? All sorts of problems. And so because of this, because that sort of thing just doesn't happen, and because Rome does a pretty darn good job at killing people, you're claiming that he rose from the dead, that doesn't happen, you're on trial. He's standing on trial because of his hope in the resurrection. And he's also standing on trial because of his hope in the resurrection. He can stand on trial. He can face anything because of his hope in the resurrection. Because he has a firm assurance. He has a confident expectation in the resurrection. Something happened on that third day. Which completely transformed the followers of Christ. For them, it wasn't like some vague idea. It wasn't, it wasn't some sort of metaphorical thought of the resurrection. There, there's something happened on the third day that completely transformed their thinking. 
their practice. Um, think about it. At the, at the end of Jesus' life, when he died, there was about 120 followers, roughly, close followers of Christ, when, at his death. They, they, they watched as Judas walked up and, and betrayed Jesus with a kiss. They, they watched him taken before the Sanhedrin, taken before Pilate. They, they listened as the crowds demanded that he is put to death, that he's crucified. They watched as he was beaten and ha as he was whipped, as a crown of thorns was placed on his head and blood ran down his face. They listened to his final words as he looked out at those who were crucifying, as, as he was nailed to the cross. They listened to him say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They, they watched him be buried. They watched a stone be rolled in front of that burial place. And they scattered. They were quiet. They were silent. They were hiding. He's dead. They lost him. Their Christ, their Messiah, was put to death. It's over. A false Messiah, like all of the other false messiahs who had come before him, there, many people who had, who had come and claimed to be the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one, and, and then after their death, whether they were executed or whether they died of natural causes, after their death, what happened to their followers? They scattered. They went into hiding. They were embarrassed because the Messiah isn't supposed to die. They went into hiding. And that was it. Never to, nobody, that was it. Jesus is put to death. He's buried. And for three days, his followers go into hiding. They, they scatter. They're doubting. How can this be? It doesn't make any sense. Something happened three days later, which caused their, his followers to come back together and to unite with a vengeance and to grow by the thousands. As all of them are coming together saying, the resurrection is real. There is life after death. Something happened on that third day that was more than metaphor, more than just a picture or a thought or a vision. Something concrete happened in which hundreds of people witnessed and thousands immediately were jumping, jumping into this thing with this great, guided by this great hope of the resurrection. Newsweek magazine said this, the resurrection had to happen. There's no historically possible alternate explanation. The resurrection had to happen. And, and, and here in, in Hebrews, what we see, Hebrews is essentially a sermon. It's, it's, if you start at Hebrews chapter 1 and read it the whole way through, it takes about 50 minutes. So it's, like a short, it's actually a short sermon for, for their culture. And what the, what the writer of Hebrews is trying to convey here is that there is something bigger than what you're currently facing. There's a better hope than what you currently have. And as he does it, he gives these examples. So look at verse 36. He says, Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. The world 
was not worthy of them. And you need to just let that sit with you. The world was not worthy of them. Absolutely unworthy of their presence. Driven by a hope. These people are forced to live in, in deserts and caves. They're mistreated. They're persecuted. And they never compromise. And they're living a life in which the, of which the world is not worthy. And here's the thing. We don't, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Uh, it's the one book. We don't know who wrote it. And there's all sorts of reasons as to why that might be. But I just want to point something out really quick. Is whoever wrote Hebrews, there's a number of people that, that uh, very possibly could have wrote Hebrews. And whoever wrote it lived out what they're, what they're preaching right here. They lived it out. Paul is a possibility. Some say Paul wrote Hebrews. Ten years, about ten years or so after he stood before the Sanhedrin, he was beheaded in Rome. Because he believed in something better. He believed in a bigger hope, in a better resurrection. Some say that Barnabas possibly wrote Hebrews. And after a dispute in the synagogue, Barnabas was dragged out. And after the most inhumane torture, he was stoned and he was killed. Others say Clement might have wrote Hebrews. Clement was martyred, being tied to an anchor and thrown from a boat into the Black Sea. Some say Luke might have wrote Hebrews. And the circumstances around Luke's death is a little unclear, but uh, some traditions say he was possibly hanged. Others say Priscilla possibly wrote Hebrews. And Aquila, uh, she was murdered along with her husband Aquila, her co-laborer, her co-minister, because she... And he believed in something much bigger and better than what you can see and what you can touch. And my point is this. For them, for whoever wrote Hebrews and for like Paul and, and most all of the early church, the resurrection wasn't some nice little thing, this metaphor or this idea that, that sort of like made their life a little nicer. It wasn't something that they would just think about and celebrate once in a while. It was something that drove their very existence. It was something that changed the course of their life and every fiber of their being was, was guided by this hope in the resurrection. This hope of something better than what they currently have. And it drove them to live lives of which the world was unworthy. And like I said, we need to, we need to, we need to just let that sit with us. Are you so enthralled with the risen Christ? Are you so enthralled with him that it's driving you to live a life which is absolutely unworthy of this world? Are you so guided by this hope that you are doing some absolutely ridiculous and crazy things? Easter is this Sunday where it's popular to do church, you know? It's popular to kind of like get up, do the Easter eggs, look at your baskets, do some church. And the reality is this. There, there are, across Baltimore, thousands and thousands of people who are in church this morning. Across the country, thousands more who are in church this morning. And this is where, this is what, where my heart is, is just uh, heavy and, and where I'm really just looking to God is, is this, is thousands of people this morning will sort of do church 
and be inspired in some way and sing some songs and listen to a sermon and, and then go home and go to the Easter egg hunt and do their thing and be absolutely untransformed. And then Monday morning they're going to get up and they're going to go to work and it'll be like every other day. Living the way they've always lived. And I don't want that for us. I don't want that for you. I don't, I don't want you to walk out of here and, and be the same. You know, I, I don't want you to not be transformed when you go back to work tomorrow or whatever you're going to do tomorrow and just kind of have gone through Easter as, as you would any other holiday or special day. Because there's something so big here. It's something so massive. Yet it's, it's so easy, easy just to miss, just to turn our heads and look the other way and think about something else. And to not allow it to completely transform us. We're, we're so focused on stuff, on, on houses, on carpet, on cars, on your iPhone, whatever, your TV. We're, so, we're, just so, we're so focused on what we can have, what we can see and touch. We're, we're so focused on getting what we want instantly, you know, instant gratification. If I want something, I want it now. Uh, we're so focused on this, this lust for more, whatever it is. You know, you fill in the blank, the lust for more of whatever it is. It's driving us. It's got a hold of us. And we're living for it. And, and even those who are filling churches across the city and across the country, week in, week out, are often as well, not transformed. They're people who are doing church. They're religious people who are not transformed by the gospel. And it's because they're so focused on, on what's current, what they can currently touch, what they can currently feel. And, and that even guides their churches. You know, uh, Francis Chan, who's a great author, speaker, pastor, I was reading his blog, and he told this story of uh, when he was recently in China. He was visiting some of the underground Christians in China, where it's illegal to do what we're doing right here. It's illegal for them. And so he was visiting some of these Christians who are, who are secretly coming together uh, in, in caves or in basements and in, in secret places to, to come together and to worship and to be together and to fellowship. And, and as he's chatting with them, he tells them, that uh, in the States, people skip around to other churches because they have better child care, better music, or better preaching. And, and he said on his blog, when he told uh, these Chinese Christians that, that people actually do this in the States, he said they literally laughed out loud because they thought he was joking. They thought he was joking. They can't fathom it. And it's because they're not consumeristic. They're not focused on the stuff. They're not focused on the instant gratification, what they can have or what they don't want. They're just focused on Jesus. They're focused on the, on the, the lamb who was slain and who was resurrected on the third day. And they're, they are completely enthralled with the gospel that nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. I recently read an article in the New York Times. Uh, it told a story recently of, of uh, Christians in Beijing who were worshiping, 
together about three years ago and the, the authorities came into their church building and stopped the service, wrote down the information, the, the, the personal information for every single person there, which for them was about a thousand people gathered in this building. Personal information for every single person that was there. And then, then the authorities went and contacted their employers and said that they are worshiping at this church and you, you need to fire them unless they, unless they leave the church. And so then many of these folks who are worshiping that Sunday morning that next week got calls, letters, whatever from their employers saying you need to leave the church if you want to keep your job. Most recently... Within the last couple weeks, they showed up on a Sunday and the doors were chained and locked by the government at, at their building where they worship. Locked out. The space that they own, they can't have it. And so this pastor, he's, he's being interviewed by the New York Times, actually behind police. He's in his house and there's police standing in front of him as he's being interviewed. And, and he, he says, we're going we're gonna to keep risking it. We're going to worship on the streets of Beijing. And by the way, guys, these are like young, urban professionals living in Beijing that are just being drawn to this message of something better, something bigger, a hope that's real and tangible. And he says, we're going to keep risking it. It's worth risking until we die. We're going we're to risk it through our death. The, the problem for many of you is this. You don't feel unworthy before the world when you really begin to think about it, you feel unworthy before God. You, you've tried to stop this, and you can't. You've tried to do this, and you can't. You've tried not to do this, and you still do it. You've tried to put the bottle down, and you pick it up. You've tried to put the needle down, and you pick it up. You've tried to keep your cool, and you lost your temper again. You lied again. And the reality is, is when you start thinking about your life, you feel unworthy before God. And, and the reality for you is that the world is all you actually have. So the thought of then being unworthy in, in, in the eyes of the world doesn't make sense. It's much easier to face the world than it is to face God for you. To face God is scary. As Brandon would say, it's, it scares the heck out of you. <laughs> and the world is all you have. I spoke in a video um, that we made a couple months ago that within a short time period, uh, a couple years ago, I saw um, a, a mom who had lost her son in tears to gun violence. Uh, and then shortly after that, I got a phone call from a friend who was, was homeless, or I'm sorry, he wasn't homeless, but he had no money. And he didn't have enough money to put food on the table for his kids. And then shortly after that, I remember sitting in, in this coffee shop with this woman who's had everything. She's had it all. Nice house, nice life, good friends, nice neighborhood. And she has tears running down her face, and she feels absolutely empty on the inside. And what I learned during this time was that all of these people had one thing in common. They all needed hope. They all lacked hope. 
and the, 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 the lie that we live in, in, in our culture, even in, in, in our churches, the lie that we embrace is that more stuff will fill that gap. Having more, being more successful, doing more, going somewhere else, knowing somebody, somebody else. Maybe there's that next friend that you're going to meet. There's something to be had. There's, there's some kind of stuff. There's something material that is going to f finally fulfill and meet that need. And the world is all that you have, and so you are searching throughout all of the world to find whatever that is. Think of those who have exceeded expectations. They, they've risen to the top of the world. Think, Wilt, Wilt Chamberlain. Any basketball fans here? Wilt Chamberlain. The stilt. Wilt the stilt. Scored uh, over 100 points in one game. Two NBA uh, championships. He averaged in the 40s and 50s in every game. I mean, absolutely an unbelievable player. I think Slam Magazine ranked him the number two greatest player of all time. Right behind me. <laughs> they, you know, they didn't, I didn't even make the list. But think about this. Just, by the way, he had sex with 20,000 women. At least he claimed to. So he, let's be honest. He was living a lot of guys' dreams. Number two, any woman he wants. Will Chamberlain still died. He, he, he made it to the top, and he still died. Or think of music. Louis Armstrong is like one of my favorite musicians. I love his music. I listen to it almost every day, don't I? <laughs> Jess is like, ugh, <laughs> turn it off. It's one of my favorite jazz performers. He's, he's like a celebrated trumpeteer, great singer, I think. Um, played on the avenue right over here. An unbelievable, uh, unbelievable performer, great stage presence he had. But he still died. And my point is this, is there's like this gap of eternity. Death comes to all. No matter how much, how much, you, how much you receive in life, how much you can attain, whatever you can grab, death is the end for everyone. Like the, the oldest dude in America just died, and I think he was 114. Somebody posted that on Facebook. 114 years old, that's pretty good. But it's still only 114, you know? I mean, like, you could be the healthiest person on this planet and maybe add 30 years to your life. All I'm saying is this, is that we're, we're grabbing for stuff. We're grabbing for the next thing, the next friend, the next job. We're trying to find hope to fill this. We're trying to find hope in all of these different places. And the reality is, is it doesn't matter if we get all of that stuff. There are people who have got everything that you want and they no longer are here and so what was driving then this early church was something bigger and something better than what they saw right around them look at verse 39 of Hebrews chapter 11 these he says were all commended for their faith 
yet none of them received what had been promised. And so he's talking about people who actually lived before Christ ever came. Before Christ walked this planet, he's, he's referring to people in the Old Testament, people who, who lived before Christ. He said these people were all committed for their faith. They never compromised. Yet none of them received what had been promised. And what was it that had been promised? In verse 40, he says, God had planned something better for us so that only together with us they would be made perfect. What is the better thing that he had planned for us? Christ. He's come. He lived. He was crucified. The lamb was led to the slaughter. And, and he was buried and he rose again. And so what we have then, we have this great resurrection, this hope. It's better. I mean, uh, I hear a lot of people say like, man, you know, I, it's hard to have faith because I can't see Jesus. You know, I, because, I mean, if I saw him raised from the dead, then that would change anything. Well, these people who he's referring to lived before Christ ever came and they were still putting their faith in him. They were still putting their faith in this coming Messiah who would bring the resurrection. And what we have is this great testimony of hundreds and hundreds of people who saw the risen Christ and their lives were transformed. Thousands were added to their number, completely transformed. Most all of them were put to death at one time or another. They lived lives which were unworthy of the world. And we are now part of that tradition. And we have Christ. We have the resurrection. We have this new life. It's here. It's now. It's for us. And it's also after death. It goes on forever. It's a better hope. It's a better hope than anything you can ever imagine. The, me the message of the gospel is this, in a nutshell. All of these nagging worries that you have, these anxieties that you have, losses in your life, every area where you slip up, where you fall, where you get knocked down and kicked, every instance in which you harbor bitterness and hatred and unforgiveness deep within you, uh, everything that makes you unworthy before God was nailed to the cross with Christ. And you died with Christ. And the scriptures say, if you died with Christ, then you also were risen with Christ to new life. Christ nailed to the cross, his arms outstretched, the wrath of God poured down upon him. What, what should have been yours was poured upon Christ and he consumed every bit of it. And rising from the dead, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Three days later, something happened. The, the question then is this, and I think probably most of you would be sitting here and be like, I, I, I get that and I want to do that, but how? Like how do I really, in, in the context of my life, in the context of, of a nine to five job, in the con context of going to school, in the context of just living my life, how do I live a life which is unworthy of this world? How do I live this just absolutely radical, sold out kind of life? Three things. I want to make this just really clear. Three things. One, left to yourself, 
you realize that, that you are utterly hopeless. Utterly hopeless. If you're going to work it, however you can work it, get whatever you can get left to yourself, it's, you have no hope. Completely broken. Completely tarnished. In the death and the resurrection of Christ, we see something better. We see something better than ourselves. We see something better than anything we can achieve. What we see is forgiveness. We see the wrath of God poured down on Christ. Through his resurrection, we have life and forgiveness. And, and that's it. And we are so that, then we are so consumed then with this that this is all we live for. We, we, our eyes are so focused on Christ. That's it. That's all we live for. I, I, I wonder if there is someone here this morning who literally has, has no hope. You've lost hope. And you feel that you're, you're happier now that you've given up on hope. And you need something better than what you have right now. God invites you to come. He invites you to, to, to come to the cross. He, he invites you to take hold of this beautiful gift of love, of salvation, of something bigger and better than what you currently have. A better resurrection. I, I wonder if there's someone here who has considered yourself a Christian for years and years but the reality is that you are so filled with anxiety and worry you're so consumed with the now of what if I don't get this what if I get sick what if this doesn't work out for me you're so consumed with the now that you are in no way you're, are you living a life that's unworthy of the world you're actually living a life that looks pretty good the, the world will never be, a, and we're going to talk about this more next week. So if this doesn't make any sense, come back next week. The world will not be impressed with us. Or the, uh, let me rephrase it. The world is not impressed with us. The world is not impressed with us as Christians. The world is not impressed with the church. Because we're doing so well. Because we have so much. Because we're so healthy. Because we're living these long lives. Because we're prosperous. The world is not impressed with us. Because we're prosperous. And you say that makes no sense. You have to come back next week. We'll talk about that. But we are so focused on being prosperous. We're so focused on, on having what we can have. Living for the now. Our eyes are nowhere near the cross. And we've been consider considering ourselves a Christian for years and years and years. And it's time that we repent of all that we are. And it's time that we turn back to the cross. And we focus our eyes on Christ. And we don't look away. And we are con completely consumed with, with his life. With his gift. With his death. With salvation. There's, there's never a moment... There's never a moment where you, where you arrive and you lean up against the cross and you have it. You have perfection. There's ne that moment never comes. There's always space 
between us and the cross. There's always this, this point where we have to stop and be real with ourselves, and be real with God and, and recognize that there is a lot of space between me and the cross. That, that the cross is there and I'm looking this way. And we need to stop and we need to turn our, our attention back to the cross and continue moving towards Christ. The, here, here's the wild paradox with this whole thing. It's not until you live a life which is completely unworthy of the world that you have a life worth living. It's not until you live a life which is completely unworthy of the world that you have a life now that's worth living. Don't waste your life. Let's pray. God, you are, you are good. You're beautiful. You're worthy. In Christ, we, we have life. We have forgiveness. God, I ask that you grant us courage, that you grant us faith, so we can continue pushing forward, that, that we fully embrace the gospel, that we embrace the cross, and that we never take our eyes off of Jesus. And God, I pray that we will live lives which are unworthy of the world and lives with, with, which are worth living. That we will, with every fiber of our being, bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.